Hi, I'm Sam Edis. And I'm Amy Nelson. Welcome to What's Her Story with Sam and Amy. This is a show about the world's most remarkable women, their professional and personal journeys. Together, we'll hear from gold medalists, best-selling authors, and leaders of the world's most iconic brands. Listen every Thursday or join the conversation anytime on Instagram at What's Her Story Podcast. Today, we bring you part two of the story of Amanda Knox, a Seattle college student who spent almost four years in an Italian prison following her wrongful conviction for the 2007 murder of Meredith Kirscher, a fellow exchange student with whom she shared an apartment. Today, we talk with Amanda about the court of public opinion, meeting her husband, her transition to motherhood, safety issues, and what comes next. Given how different the court of public opinion judged you from what the truth was, how do you now reconcile, you know, do you care more about what people think of you or less? I care and I don't care depending on the circumstance. So on the one hand, I know, and and I think in a big way, I just sort of know that when people are judging other people, oftentimes what they are doing is they are projecting their own feelings of either guilt or anger or hurt onto the individual instead of like really deeply understanding the individual. Um, so if if that makes sense, like I often feel like the person that people hated and that people wanted to put away in prison was not me. It was an idea of a person that just happened to have my face and my name. And so when I continue to this day to receive messages that convey not just, you know, general dislike, but like actual hatred. It's a stunning reminder for me that so often what people think of me has nothing to do with me and has everything to do with what's going on with them. And that I just happen to be a convenient sort of thing that they can project whatever is happening inside of them onto. So that's that is a good reminder for me, even when it happens in like, you know, other circumstances that say like there's a misunderstanding between me and my sister i i'm very much reminded like oh yeah she may be upset and it might have nothing to do with me it might have something to do with something that's going on with her and that gives me a better perspective of how to deal with the situation but it does matter you know like it matters to me in the sense that in a lot of ways what kind of person people think of me as and what especially when it comes to what I am limited to. A lot of people think that I exist solely in the box that they first heard me in, in association with a murder that I didn't do. And so if they ever hear of me existing outside of that story and outside of that space, I people get frustrated at me. Like they're like, stop existing outside of this box that I have you nicely labeled in in my mind. Like you don't get to go on and and be a mom and get married because I forever associate you with the death of another young girl. So I'm always forever going to compare you to that dead young girl. And everything you do as a person who is not dead is an insult to her memory. And that is the kind of thing that I face, where 
it, it almost seems like my very existence in some people's minds is an insult. The fact that I'm not dead is an insult. And, um, and that is a great limitation because it means that, uh, you know, as I walk through the world as a non-anonymous person, I, I can't do what normal people do. I can't go on Tinder. I can't get a regular job. I can't, you know, do all of those things. And it's extremely isolating. And so I've been extremely fortunate to meet someone who is now the father of my child and and create a life for myself despite those limitations. How did you meet? Um, we have a great meet cute story. Um, he's a, a local author. He's uh, my husband went to graduate school twice for poetry um, because once is not enough. And then while I was in prison, he was wandering around the country as an itinerant poet. So that's his history. I had no idea who he was when I uh, first met him. In fact, I never even intended to meet him because at the time, you know, at the time that he was writing his book, I was living basically in hiding and I was only associating with my family and the friends who I had met before prison and like maybe one or two other people who I met in school who I connected with in like poetry class. And so I was living a very quiet life. I was working for a local newspaper, um, writing arts correspondence. So going and writing reviews of plays and books from by local authors. And I was given an advanced copy of his first novel. And I was asked to review it. So I did. And I it's called War of the Encyclopedists. It was so funny and smart and tragic and awesome. And I wrote a great review. And then I submitted it. And that was going to be the end of it, except like the very next day, I found out that he was doing a book reading in the local bookstore right near my apartment. And I thought, huh, maybe this is the first time that I can go and meet someone who I've never met before and, and check out this, you know, this situation. And I went and I, I saw him give this book reading and I asked him for an interview and we had a really fun time. We talked about Star Trek and and drank scotch and just sort of hit it off. And at the end of that, he shook my hand and was like, we should be friends. And, you know, it was not a big deal for him. He didn't follow my case. He was, you know, not a true crime guy. He kind of sort of knew that people knew about me, but like didn't really care he wasn't, you know, thinking like, oh, I got to be friends with this person. He was just like, hey, we should be friends. But if we're not, whatever, like that was fun. And for me, it was a really big deal because this was maybe a month or two after I had been fully exonerated. And it was the first time that I was like, wow, maybe I can like meet people and make friends in the real world like a normal person. And I did. And we became friends. And then about like nine months later, we started dating. And we started dating in 2016. So I guess it's been five years. And now we have a five-month-old baby. Can you live a life where you go to the pumpkin patch with your daughter and go to the mall or go to public places and exist as Amanda Knox, the mother, the wife, the the family person who's a writer. I mean, what is that like for you? I mean, I keep trying, right? Like I, nothing, despite the fact that I've definitely encountered problems before, like, you know, when I got married, it became a tabloid story. And when I had a kid and, you know, it became a tabloid story. So I definitely 
um, am still considered a tabloid story in a lot of people's minds. And my ongoing sort of private life is still considered content for people, even though it's not in the public interest. And I don't feel like it is. I feel like my private life is often exploited by by tabloids to this day. That doesn't stop me from living my life. And I feel like that's been sort of crucial to me um, being able to reintegrate well into society and and to build a life for myself because I've always pushed back against what people have said I'm not allowed to do. Like I'm not allowed to be, I'm not allowed to meet people. I'm not allowed to go out. I'm, I'm supposed to sort of live in the shadow of this horrible experience that happened to me and, and that's it. That's my life. And I've always said, you know, like it's not my life and that's not who I am. Who I am has nothing to do with the fact that I was wrongly accused of murder. In fact, it has everything to do with the people who accused me of murder and it has nothing to do with me. And who I am is what I do now. So I'm going to do the best I can with the circumstances that were given me. And I'm going to let that be the thing that defines me. And talking about what you are now in your career, you're a storyteller, you're a writer, you're a podcaster. How did you envision building a career when you came home? Like, How do you even begin to think about doing that? Because like you said, it's not like you can go like interview for a job. No, and indeed, like even the idea of like, how did you envision that? Like, I, I haven't really been able to envision anything. I've more been sort of being present and aware of what sort of presents itself to me. And I try to create the best opportunities out of those circumstances as I can in the moment. But even for me, like, and I think a lot of millennials and, and younger people feel this, is they often feel like they have to adapt to an ever-changing environment and that the world is um, a lot more difficult <laughs> than it used to be in terms of like how to you know build a career. And that's especially difficult for me because in a lot of ways, I don't want to be, for instance, tied down to a public space where people where I can reliably be found because I receive death threats. So I don't want somebody to find out where I work and then find out where I live and, and all of that. So instead, embracing opportunities that allowed me to have the um, not just you know, freedom to work from home, but the like the opportunity to feel safe because I work from home. And oftentimes those opportunities have presented themselves because someone was kind enough to offer me the opportunity to prove my worth. And in and it started with being offered the opportunity to write for a local newspaper. And that turned into writing some articles for a women's magazine for Vice called Broadly. And that turned into doing a, a show for Facebook called The Scarlet Letter Reports, where I interviewed women who had been publicly vilified. And that turned into me doing a podcast called The Truth About True Crime, where I examined the way that criminal like criminal justice has been portrayed and stories about crime have been portrayed in the media and put centralizing the stories of the or the the voices of the people who find themselves at the center of those stories what do they think about the way that they have been portrayed and that turned into my latest venture which is the podcast labyrinths that i write produce do everything with my husband christopher and that's been really fun because i love working with my husband 
I love talking to people about when they have felt lost and how they have found their way through overwhelming experiences. I've had the opportunity to talk to some really cool people, including people who I think are just awesome, like Brent Spiner, Data. Come on, like that's amazing. <laughs> we came full circle. We talked about Star Trek when my husband and I first met, and now we're go we're working our way through the cast of TNG. <laughs> <laughs> and now, a quick break. My dad works in B2B marketing, but I never really knew what that meant. Then one day, my dad came by my school for career day and told everyone in my class he was a big MQL man. Then he just kept saying things like, the more MQLs, the better, over and over. My friends still laugh at me to this day. I think it means marketing qualified lead. One thing's for sure. I'll be known as the MQL man's kid for the rest of my days. Why couldn't you just be a fireman or a lawyer? Why? You ruined my life, Dad. Not everyone gets B2B, but LinkedIn has the people who do. And with ads on LinkedIn, you'll be able to reach people based on job title, industry, likelihood to buy, and more. Start converting your B2B audience into high-quality leads today. We'll even give you $100 credit on your next ad campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash customer to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash customer. Terms and conditions apply. LinkedIn, the place to be, to be. How do you deal with personal safety? I think that that's one of the things anyone who has experienced what you have, how do you get back to a, a place of normalcy and not letting it overcome all of your decisions? Yeah, and not letting it become something that you crazily obsess over and are paranoid about. Like that, that's the interesting thing is it's, um, you know, it's only crazy and paranoid if you haven't received death threats or if you, you know, if you've never had someone break into your home and murder your roommate. Exactly. You have all the reason <laughs> to be afraid. Exactly. Yeah. Well, I, I don't invite people to my home unless I trust them. Uh, that's a big thing. And it has occasionally occurred where somebody has found out where I live and showed up. And I do not react well to that. Even if they're a journalist who says that they're supportive and they just want to talk, it's like, do not show up at my house unannounced. That's not cool with me. Um, they're like, I don't have many spaces in the world where I'm just allowed to be a private person and my home is like the one place. So just don't violate that. All the same, like, you know, I'm I'm not living in, you know, the backwoods in Montana where down a really, really long dirt road. And it's not like I don't have relationships with my neighbors because I do. I'm trying to live as normal a life as possible while also allowing the gift of fear to inform my decisions about when and how I invite people into my personal space. Your family and friends seemed so incredible and extraordinary through your entire ordeal. I mean, even your friend Madison moved to Italy just to see you one hour every week or two. I mean, the resilience of those relationships you had was so extraordinary. And one thing that struck me was how you kept them to, I guess it was like six people who, you know, beyond your extended family, who you really relied on. What role did they play? And then what kind of relationships do you have with those people today? Yeah, I mean, so my family has always been very close. Um, I've also um, tended to cultivate few but close friendships with people. And that translated into 
you know, people who were just there with me through thick and thin. And it was one of the reasons why I think that I have um, been able to reintegrate back into society um, better than a lot of people who come out of prison because I didn't feel alone. I didn't feel like I, um, in being wrongly convicted, I suddenly lost my belonging to the sort of member. I didn't lose membership to humanity. These were people who knew me, who cared about me, who belong, who knew that I belonged with them and I was part of their community, even if I had been removed. And so I was able to come back and, and rejoin that community all the same. Like, I didn't come back the same person and I didn't come back to a world that treated me the same way. And so in a lot of ways, my my relationship with my family and friends have evolved too since then because we, in a way, had to relearn and rediscover each other um, after I came home because we had all been changed, not just me. Like everyone in my family, my friends had all been traumatized by what happened and we all have reacted to that trauma in different ways. So like it, it's interesting to see how since we it's not just me, but my sisters and my friends who grew up in this overwhelmingly traumatic experience, how we have all reacted to it in different ways. Your family had to mortgage their homes to defend you, to travel to Italy. What role has money played in your life? Well, growing up, I never had to worry about it. Um, not because my family was spectacularly wealthy, but because we were, you know, my dad had a job as an accountant at the Bon Marche and my mom was a school teacher and we always had food on the table. And when my mom was too busy or too tired to make dinner, we would walk over to my Oma's house and she would make dinner. So I never in my life had felt like money was this incredible burden or struggle. I still had to earn it. Like before going to Perugia, I um, I had three jobs that I was working in order to save money in order to spend a year abroad. But that didn't feel like that was, again, like an incredible burden. It just seemed like that was just what you did. And then um, I came home and I was over a million dollars in debt in debt to my family, in debt to my attorneys. I was in ongoing debt because the trial was not over. And I I very gratefully was able to sell a memoir. And with that money, pay back my parents, pay back my attorneys, pay back the, the publicist who had assisted my family over the course of the years. And I was able to go back to school. And so it's interesting. There was this weird period of my life where I had so many zeros to account for. <laughs> and, and now I'm, I'm uh, living a regular middle-income person's life. I have a Patreon for my podcast. <laughs> like, you know, it's like, it's real. So are, and are you still in debt or have you climbed your way out of that? I've definitely climbed out of my um, out of legal debt for sure. And I was able to pay for school. So that was the big thing. I was able to like get back to ground zero. Speaking of, you know, coming home and being in all this legal debt and continuing to fight and all the things you had to deal with, you, in addition to being a storyteller, also work on criminal justice reform. Mm -hmm. And part of that is through storytelling, because I think that one of the things that's a really big obstacle for people who are not 
personally impacted by the criminal justice system is feeling like they can't relate to it. Like, oh, you know, I grew up in an environment where I just sort of assumed that bad people go to prison and good people never have to worry about it. And it's much more complicated than that, even if like the criminal justice system only ever interacted with people who had, in fact, committed crimes, which it doesn't. It also is the way that we deal with people who have harmed others is, I have witnessed firsthand, imperfect and has led to more harm in the long run because we are not doing things to, first of all, recidivate people who or sorry, to rehabilitate people who have committed harm to address the fact that a lot of people who commit crimes and harm others have been harmed prior to having committed crimes. Um, We do very little in the criminal justice system to address the needs of victims of crime. We often put them on the spot and don't offer them resources and support and put them in a position of feeling like they are at the service of the criminal justice system and the criminal justice system isn't at their service. So in a lot of ways, we rely on punishing the um, the person who committed the harm instead of rehabilitating the person who has been harmed. Like all of these different ways that our criminal justice system is this hammer that treats everything like a nail and is committing harms in the process um, is something that I can only is a complicated thing that I can only convey through the hum- like through human storytelling. And so talking about the people that I met in prison and talking about the experience of what it's like to be in a police interrogation room and bringing sort of helping others who have been wrongly convicted find their voice and share their stories and to offer a new perspective on cases where people have been very, very harshly judged, whether they're a victim or a perpetrator. Those are things that I feel like I have a unique perspective and skill for that I'm really grateful to bring to the table. Do you listen to true crime podcasts? (laughs) Um, So I listen um, to true crime podcasts in part, like almost as like homework because I I don't listen to them for enjoyment purposes. I listen to them because I want to understand how crime is being talked about and whether or not we are learning from our past mistakes in the way that we talk about crime. And so I, especially when a a true crime podcast becomes really popular or like a true crime documentary becomes really popular, I pay attention because I'm trying to gauge the temperature of if people even realize what it is they're consuming and why they are consuming it. A great example of this is like Tiger King. Tiger King was huge, tremendously successful. Everyone had watched it. It was so freaking entertaining. It was also in a lot of ways really unethical because it was it indulged in flagrant speculation about Carol Baskin's involvement in her husband's murder on not really any evidence whatsoever. And it, it may be the case that that was something that was worth looking into, but the way that people responded to that documentary acting like they knew for sure that Carol Baskin had 
murdered her husband. And people were doing dances on TikTok talking about how Carol Baskin murdered her husband. And people were holding up signs out in the world being like, Carol Baskin killed her husband. Like that gave me pause, how there was almost like a glee in the speculation and the false um, sense of authority that we all could take away from a documentary saying like, this is who this person is and this is this horrible crime that she committed. And now I feel entitled to broadcast that to the world. Like that really troubled me. If you didn't have the infamy that follows you and you didn't have, you know, Amanda Knox, which means so many things to so many people at this point, what career would you pursue if you had the world as your oyster? Hmm. I mean, it's it's an interesting question because I don't often speculate about if my life were different than it already is. Um, but what I do know is that way back when I went to study abroad in Perugia, what I really wanted to do was to be an interpreter and to be a translator. And so, you know, knowing myself, I feel like my ideal situation would be I would be reading Italian novels and translating them into English and I would, you know, like I would be traveling a lot to do so and and that would be my that was my ideal life before everything happened. I sense feel like I'm translating in a different way. I'm translating experience and like knowledge differentials between groups of people because again I really do feel like I lived in this really safe bubble growing up where I felt like I the criminal justice system didn't really have anything to do with me and I never had to think about it. And today I realize that 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 is the opposite of the truth and that all of us should be concerned about what's happening in the criminal justice system not because not just because we could be un you know inadvertently wrapped up in it but because we are all implicated in how it treats real human beings and what it means for our society. It really matters. We all have a say and we all have a responsibility to pay attention to it. And now a quick break. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow the global story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. Well, we want to make sure that we have time for our speed round and then Lou Burns is going to come in with his final question. What are you reading right now? I'm reading a book about mindfulness. It's a it's a meditation book. What are you writing right now? Right now, besides episodes of my podcast Labyrinths, um, I'm also working on a um, a book about other people who have been um, have had their stories turned into entertainment products without their consent. So I'm looking into stories like that. Oh, and I forgot to mention the other thing that I'm reading right now that we just started, me and my husband just started reading was um, a Batman comic book, The the Dark Knight. <laughs> what is your nighttime routine? Which is a hard question to ask the mother of a five-month-old. Yeah, yeah I was about to say, <laughs> waking up three times. Um, no, um, my nighttime routine is usually um, once I put baby down, my husband and I tune out to... Um, 
either some weird owl music or uh, we watch a show like community or something like that. We like to um, we really enjoy humor and comedy because we often are dealing with really serious things in our day to day job. And so we like to um, settle down with humor. If you had to call one motto your life motto, what would it be? That's a hard one. Because I feel like the the trouble with mottos is I don't feel like they always work in every situation. <laughs> like, uh, you know, hang in there doesn't always work. <laughs> you know? um, I have a feeling that would not be your motto. <laughs> Having spent the last hour with you. <laughs> Um, do what you can with what you have when you can, that kind of thing. All right, Lou. All I was thinking is like, finally, a different perspective on wrongful convictions. <laughs> you know, like a real life different perspective because uh, your situation didn't happen in America. It happened in a totally different country. So it shows how we are. It's very much alike as human beings, right? Where we Where we use... A circumstance and a and a and a situation, and we create the outcome, even though that really didn't happen. Did you see when they see us? It's a it's a Netflix. So in that sense, I'm I'm, I'm you're actually just a few um just just one year older than me. I learned about it through Netflix. So just watching it, like how could people do that to people? You know. So in in the sense of prior to being charged with the murder, how did you feel about when people said I'm innocent? I mean, I never thought about it. Because I didn't have to because it never, you know, like that's that's the really troubling thing is that I don't think that people what I what I understood was that when people are accused of crimes, it's because there's a good reason that they were accused of crimes that we should trust when when people are accused. And there are a lot of all the, the only thing that guilty people say is that they're innocent. And it's interesting, like I also had not really heard about the Central Park Five because I feel like we were too young when it was actually going on. But I met them. Like, I know them. Like, and, um, and when I heard about their story, I was insanely shocked because, once again, one of those really tragic cases of there's absolutely no physical evidence whatsoever. We just want a guilty party. And so we're going to force these we're going to force these kids to implicate themselves and we're going to tie a neat little judicial bow on top of them and forget about them in the criminal justice system. And this was not something that I ever thought about prior to all of this. And the way that the way that we use just kind of naturally as human beings othering so the way that you look at another human being and you decide that they are not like you and you can therefore judge them and dehumanize them through the process of accusation and create a character about them that justifies our sort of hatred for them and our and our desire to punish them. That is something that was shocking for me to experience firsthand and which has stayed with me forever. And you're right. Like one of the weird things about my case is that a lot of people have heard about it, even though I'm really an outlier when it comes to these cases. Like I'm a college educated white girl. You almost never see a college educated white girl accused of murder. 
so that interestingly gives me a sort of empathy and um, for those who have been accused of murder um, who are who, who like are happen to be like that happens to be an, a real concern for them because it happens to them a lot. And in this case, we're talking about young, disenfranchised men. Like the vast majority of the people that I have met who have been wrongly convicted have been poor men and men of color. And it's um, a really interesting family to belong to because I know that one of the reasons why I'm an effective advocate in some ways is because people look at me and they see their daughter instead of someone who looks different than them. And that's sad that that's a human nature thing. But it does mean that I feel a great sense of responsibility and duty to share that this is happening to real people who are really innocent and they deserve to have their freedom fought for. That is one way to start a season. Yeah, I mean, I think that what's so incredible about Amanda's story is in many ways, it relates to sort of anything you're going through in life is that like she completely controlled her perspective on what was happening to her. It was the only thing she could control was her mindset. And she decided like, I am now going to see the people in prison around me as my community. And I'm going to figure out how I can make the most of this community and how I can contribute to this community. It was just... I mean, so motivational. I still get chills thinking about it. I am sitting here. You can see me, but I'm almost crying thinking about that that part of our conversation. I mean, for this young woman who's been convicted of a crime she didn't commit, who, you know, like she said, like, she was also convicted by the world, right? By this, like, this the court of public opinion. And she still is. I know. I know she still is. But for her to say, I mean, to your point, for her to say, like, I looked around and I thought, this is where I am. This is who I am. This is my life. And what is it? Like, very few people have within them the ability to do that. It's remarkable. And she's also struck me with just she's so bright and she's just so So indulgent. (laughs) And the fact that she really can't apply for a normal job. She can't go on Tinder. She can't take her kid to Disneyland. Like, all of the things that we take for granted as just like normal everyday things, she still has this scarlet letter on her forever because so many people never followed it. Right. And I think that goes to this broad question that we talked about with her. It's like, how do you come back from Italy and even begin to rebuild a life? But she did and she is and she still she still is, right? Like it's this ongoing process. And I think one thing that's you know, blows me away even more about Amanda is the work she does with the Innocence Project and other organizations. Because while Amanda's case has this global notoriety, there are a lot of people in America who go to prison and have to come out and rebuild their lives as well. And it's hard for everybody, right? Like that is a really difficult thing to do. We've made it hard in this country. And I think it's really powerful that she works on that issue. Oh, I love that she works on this issue. And it's something you and I are both so passionate about, prison reform and how flawed our our justice system is and the way we treat the incarcerated and the lack of rehabilitation. But I think that, you know, one of the things that I can't stop thinking about with her case is that in many ways, like because it was so public, 
the way it it was it just was seared into everyone's mind. There are so many people who never followed the case and just remember her as the guilty one, as opposed to you know getting the four year later follow up of oh she's been exonerated. Like a lot of people just moved topics, and so wherever she goes, she is recognized by certain people who don't know the story. And I just think that must be just crushing, so often just crushing to deal with that on a daily basis. I cannot imagine. I think, you know, there's a sentiment, and I know the Italian legal system is very different than the American legal system. But even in the American legal system, we have this sentiment. It's really based on this, right, that you're innocent until proven guilty. But in the modern world, with media, with the Internet, once you're accused, it defines so much of your story forever, And I think it's just really important that people hear Amanda's story today, that they hear what happened, what life is like now, like how she's rebuilt things and and just the injustice of it all. Right. Like we shall sit with it. Absolutely. I think even after listening to these two episodes, I encourage you to read her book because the details in her book of of really just the trial and the fact that it was only five weeks after she arrived in Italy. I mean, we, you know, I am a mother now of a 16 year old. Amanda was only a few years older than that when this happened. It's it's just almost impossible to believe, you know, your child goes for a, a semester abroad and five weeks later is accused of a crime they didn't commit. It's, it's really the unthinkable. And I'm just really curious as to what Amanda is going to do next. I know she's podcasting now and, and writing, but I think that something extraordinary is going to be in store for her. I just, I'm so overwhelmed by just how extraordinary a person she is. And I was so impressed by her. Same. And I look forward to supporting her in in whatever comes next. Thanks for listening to What's Her Story with Sam and Amy. We would appreciate it if you'd leave a review wherever you get your podcasts. And of course, connect with us on social media at What's Her Story Podcast. What's Her Story with Sam and Amy is powered by my company, The Riveter, at theriveter.co and Sam's company, Park Place Payments, at parkplacepayments.com. Thanks to our producer, Stacey Para and our male perspective, Lou Burns. 